Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for taking the time to join us uh, today. This is uh, Thursday, and this is a rare Thursday show for us. Thursday, May 23rd, and I'm coming to you live from the global headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America CalfAmerica.org. Uh, we've got a big show for you today. Of course, we're uh, coming up on here in the United States, uh, coming up on the Memorial Day holiday. Uh, we will share with you the upcoming schedule here on the Nonprofit Coach a little bit later on in the show, but just to make note uh, for all of your calendars that we do not have a live show next Tuesday as we normally would uh, in observance of the Memorial Day holiday here in the United States. Uh, as the announcer said, this is a live call-in show, so we do encourage you to call in with your questions at 347-324-3080. You also can join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room. You can type out your questions there or email me your questions today at tedhart.com at tedhart.com. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, we start the show off with page one news. As always here on the Nonprofit Coach, you can join us um, online at tedhart.com and receive all of the links for the information that I'm sharing with you today uh, in our radio links. Again, tedhart.com. Click on radio links. Over there today you will find uh, sent to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy a new article on why nonprofits should rethink their email campaigns. As more and more people use smartphones rather than computers, to check their email, many charities are rethinking the way that they communicate with their supporters and promote their events. Uh, this is a very well-written article that gives you some good information, uh, but the bottom line is that shorter messages are much more effective in the mobile age. Uh, videos are more like email candy. Re uh, recipients can't resist clicking in on the play button and sharing them through social media. So once again, as we've said many, many times here on the show, uh, mobile is um, changing the landscape in terms of how you use email and how you are using social media. Learn all about it over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Click on radio links where you will also find uh, uh, sent uh, to us from the fundraisingcoach.com uh, a gift range calculator and oftentimes as you are starting to plan for capital campaigns and major gift campaigns um, it's hard to necessarily remember all of the uh, details of, of what would be uh, the um, uh, gift ranges that you would be looking for so for instance 
if you are looking to raise a million dollars in general, uh, you would need to be able to identify five prospects, all of which who would be able to uh, give a $250,000 gift. You would need to close one of those gifts uh, to meet the uh, the basic standard outline of a major gift or capital campaign. Uh, going on down uh, through, you would then uh, need, uh, for instance, 10 prospects able to give $100,000. You would need to close two of those gifts. Um, so use the gift range calculator as a good thumbnail uh, as you're putting together your campaigns. And of course, we know a lot of you folks are looking uh, to year-end giving and in the fall starting to launch some of those larger campaigns. That calculator will help you in your planning, and you can find that again today at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. We also, uh, from time to time, like to bring you a little measure of geek and coming to us from CNN Tech uh, today. Uh, for those of you who uh, have always wondered, how do you pronounce that little GIF when you're sending a, a, a little uh, uh, file, uh, a little piece of software, uh, and uh, that's referred to as a, GF, a GIF file? Uh, there's been, I guess, somewhat of the debate, is that a GIF or is that a GIF? Uh, well, it has been settled because the gentleman who created uh, the graphics interchange format, uh, or GIF, um, has settled that and said that uh, it is, in fact, to be pronounced GIF. Here in the United States, uh, there is a peanut butter um, known as GIF. So if you think of that, it is officially a GIF and not a GIF file. You can, of course, read all about that and see uh, the gentleman, Steve White, uh, who recently received a Webby Award. Uh, and uh, did settle that uh, that issue for all you geeks out there. It is, in fact, a GIF. Also, uh, speaking of a little measure of a geek, and these are sort of junior geeks, uh, a Doodle for Google uh, was a contest that was recently uh, uh, put together from Google where uh, this is an annual program that invites K-12 through students in the United States to use their artistic talents to think big and redesign the homepage logo uh, for millions to see over on Google. Uh, there are scholarship dollars hand, uh, hanging in the balance. And uh, we just thought going into the holiday, you might like to see some of the fantastic artwork that was put together. And the winners are noted there um, at, over in the radio links today. You can find that under Doodle for Google, and you'll be able to see those award winners. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach, I'm here in the uh, radio links. Uh, we also want to draw attention uh, coming to you from the Content Marketing Institute. Um, recently just posted Optimizing Your Content Marketing Strategy with eight keyword tracking tips. Um, so all that uh, information very well put together, um, sort of a step-by-step -step in terms of where you can go and get really good information on uh, the various campaigns that you may be putting together online and how you can track w whether or not your keywords are making any difference. That's available over in the radio links today. In addition to Nonprofit Marketing, a quick start guide to fundraising uh, sent to us by Search Engine Watch, uh, that's searchenginewatch.com. Um, in a recent uh, uh, Facebook post, um, got uh, this uh, author uh, thinking about um, how um, you might be able to do a better job marketing uh, your organization. And some of the tips that you'll find here are uh, helping you with uh, timing. Once you've established your event, it's time to come up with a date in the summer. Nearly every weekend is filled with activities. Make sure that you aren't hosting your event on the same day as a similar event. That goes without saying. But what about incentives and branding? Uh, how do you uh, spread the word? There's a, a link here on promoting your event and selling tickets. And then what about uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, press releases, sponsorships. Um, so this is uh, all outlined for you over in the radio links today uh, under the title Nonprofit Marketing, a quick start guide for fundraising. Uh, next up here on uh, the Nonprofit Coach as we're starting to wrap up our page one uh, issues today is four ways to find your brand's voice. And this is uh, from one of the smartest websites on the Internet. You can find that at Mashable. Dot com four ways to find your brand's uh, voice, um, such as uh, building archetypes. Now, what does he or she look like in terms of what does your target audience look like? Where does he or she work? What do they care about? What do they do for fun? It also challenges you to fill in the blank 
uh, with some questions. So let me share some of these with you. Spend a little bit of time answering the following questions, and this will help you find your voice. I want my organization to make people feel blank. Uh, blank makes me feel this way. I want people to blank when they come into contact with my organization. Uh, three words that describe my organization are blank, blank, and blank. Uh, I want to mimic the brand voice of who? I mean, who's out there that's really got a great voice that you wish that your organization was more like? Um, equally important, I think, is um, I dislike the brand voice uh, of this other organization, so we want to steer clear of that. Um, and interacting with my donors, donor clients, potential clients makes me feel in what way blank. Um, and also, I really like in this article, finding your muse. Um, what are those organizations out there? And they share some for-profit brands that have particular voices uh, and what those voices say about you in terms of whether or not you're drawn to uh, to those voices uh, or not. So I think uh, you know finding your muse in terms of where you are taking your organization makes a lot of sense. You'll be able to find that uh, over a Mashable uh, for finding your voice. And with that, it is now time for us to head on over to our page two expert for today. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, welcome here to the nonprofit coach, uh, uh, a friend and a colleague who I've known for many years and have just been in awe of the wonderful leadership uh, that Janice Galpetti has brought to the nonprofit field. Uh, surprisingly, for more than 25 years, um, she has been around for a long time, but is youthful as always. Uh, she is an internationally recognized authority on fundraising and regularly conducts training and leads presentations for all types of groups and organizations. She has been known for many years as a specialist in diversity and ethics in fundraising issues. Her book, Cultivating Diversity in Fundraising, was published by John Wiley & Sons in 2001 and won the Case International Research Award in 2003. She also served as editor of the New Directions in Philanthropy Fundraising, Diversity in Fundraising Profession, uh, published by Josie Bass in 2002. Um, and uh, just to make note, uh, today's show is part of the Wiley, AFP Wiley radio series here on the Nonprofit Coach, a monthly uh, radio series where um, AFP and John Wiley & Sons brings to our audience here on the Nonprofit Coach the very best in authors from the John Wiley uh, series at AFP. Janice is an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco where she teaches courses in fundraising, strategic planning, and board governance. She serves on the International Board of the Association of Fundraising Professionals and chairs the AFP's Ethics Committee. She also chaired the 2005 Think Tank on Ethics held in Washington, D.C., and Janice has led AFP's 2005 Diversity Summit. Uh, for the purposes of today, in addition to the incredible work that she has and the incredible insight that she brings uh, to us, Janice has written a new book, uh, and this is part of the AFP Fund Development Series known as Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy, a guide to ethical decision-making and regulation for nonprofit organization. Uh, Janice uh, currently uh, serves as Vice President for Resource Development at the Asia Foundation, and for that purpose we have provided you a direct link uh, to Janice's contact information over at the Asia Foundation. In today's radio links at tedhart.com, click on radio links. And now it's my absolute pleasure to welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Janice Galpetti. Thank you so much, Ted, for that warm welcome. And it is indeed an honor to be uh, on your radio talk show. Well, your expertise, and thank you for that, your expertise is, is an area of uh, intense interest uh, to the audience of the Nonprofit Coach, um, both in the nonprofit fundraising strategy area, but also in ethics and diversity, uh, which are topics that everyone wants to get right and everyone wants to understand, but uh, often does come across as more of a mystery. Um, so if you don't mind, I, I thought um, we'll get to your book because we, we definitely want to. It's a, a quite a large book and you have an awful lot to say there. But I, if you don't mind, I wanted to start off with the, the topics that you have been known for many years as one of the top experts in the fundraising profession on the topics of diversity and ethics. And I wondered if you might share some insight there as, as to um, while there has been, um, I think, a very good focus at AFP in, in drawing these issues forward, 
why do they continue to be such mysteries for most professionals? Well, I think to um, in attempt to demystify uh, why people will say to me, well, why Janice, why diversity, and then why ethics, and and how would you uh, you know bring these together in terms of um, my own professional career, and um, this is a bit of background for um, people who are listening into this uh, call. My uh, my ethnicity is I'm a fourth generation Chinese American. Um, actually, I'm a fourth-generation Californian, uh, <laughs> a native San Franciscan, uh, to be um, to be precise. And when I was um, a newly minted uh, undergraduate, I received my bachelor's degree. Um, I was in graduate school, and I decided, you know, after all this schooling, there's got to be more in life to this. And now I'm going to show my um, my age a little bit here. Um, at that point in time, the Peace Corps was a um, a fairly new institution. And as we all probably, you all probably know, it was uh, President Kennedy's cry to, you know, um, for young people to go out and to be able to help uh, not their own, just their own country, but to work in developing countries. And so I was fortunate enough uh, to be selected as a Peace Corps volunteer. And I was sent to um, Korea. Now, at that point in time, Korea is not the South Korea that we know today. It was emerging from war. It was uh, poverty-stricken, and uh, the economic situation was dire, to say the least, uh, in that country. As a Asian-American female, I was um, asked to serve as a public health volunteer. Now, mind you, my degree is in English literature. <laughs> but, you know, that's um, neither here nor there. But roll up uh, your sleeves, you can do almost anything, right? Right, you know, you can do anything. When you're that age, you think that that's true. There's nothing, you're invincible. So off I went to um, to a very remote uh, fishing village in uh, northeastern Korea, very close to the DMZ. And uh, I was assigned to uh, open a uh, health clinic in that very uh, isolated area. It was a very challenging opportunity for me. I struggled. Uh, I was misunderstood. I believe that I, in turn, misunderstood others. And from that, just to make this um, tale bring it to an end, from that came a lifelong interest in what I'll call diversity, and it's how different cultures come together, how I as an Asian couldn't have been any more like Koreans in that remote fishing village uh, than they could you know, come to San Francisco and uh, be like me. And so as a result, my entire career in the nonprofit sector, fundraising, uh, this, this notion of how we understand and learn and work with each other uh, became very important to me, and I bring that to my um, to my work as both an author and a practitioner in that I believe that we tend to sometimes uh, categorize a bit when we think about diversifying uh, the fundraising profession. You know, what does it really mean to diversify the fundraising profession? Does it mean that you have more people of color that you bring in and you hire more? I think more? a lot of people gravitate towards that, don't they? I mean, it, it well, sounds like what you're what you're talking about is cultural awareness, sensitivity, understanding. But I think when people hear diversity, they immediately think, well, we need more faces of color. Exactly. I mean, you hear that with staff. You hear that with diversifying boards. Uh, and so the the question that I uh, you know, uh, posed back in return is, well, is it only because you are a person of color or you represent uh, by race or ethnicity a certain um, population that qualifies you to be culturally aware and to be sensitive to others? Uh, I would suggest, you know, to answer my own question, that no, that's not necessary. So then this brings into, this is where ethics begins to come into um, the conversation, which is, Ethics, in a very uh, broad sense, is an exploration of values. And we all have different sets of values. What we're challenged to do and what we face every day uh, in our uh, professional and personal uh, settings is how do we act in keeping our values intact and perhaps working with those whose values are different than ours. 
So I'll stop there, but that's kind of a very, you know, um, lengthy way of introducing why diversity in ethics in my life. Well, and I'm so glad that you did. I mean, I, you, you said a, an awful lot, but I, th- I think it's also very powerful what you just said because uh, I think that uh, the words diversity and ethics, they get thrown around so much uh, that they, they, they sort of take on this mystique that I can't even ask questions about it because I'm expected to know what it is. Um, and until someone like you comes in and helps breaking it down and helping define it in a way that people can make it more approachable, um, to to say, you know, it's not just a matter, as, as we just mentioned, of just having uh, faces of color, uh, but it's are you being culturally sensitive? Are you being culturally aware? Are you taking steps to make sure that you have those voices available, whether those voices and that knowledge come from people who actually are of a diverse uh, race versus the uh, uh, the majority, uh, or uh, do you have people who have taken the time and spent uh, the time um, to grow in that understanding and can bring that voice forward as well, and both can be equally valuable. Mm-hmm. Yes. The, and, um, and how do you demystify ethics in in, uh, <laughs> in the same way? Because I, I think that's you know everyone wants to be ethical everybody wants I, I don't think i don't think most people of course there's probably some but i don't think most people um set out to be unethical but they can end up taking actions that would be seen as unethical yes well right i i don't think that most people wake up in the morning and say well i think i'm going to be ethical today or right. conversely or not. You know, right. I think I'm going to be unethical today. Uh, and, and if we accept uh, the very general uh, description that I apply to ethics, which is that it is uh, a um, – values are a very important part of ethics. Uh, it's been said by you know great philosophers of the past uh, that um, what we're looking at as uh, ethical people is – to live the good life. And to live the good life is not necessarily that I have all of the material things that I wish to have or make the money that I want to have or whatever, drive the newest car, but to live the good life is to characterize good as a life that gives and a life that is filled with uh, beneficence. And I I think that that rings so true for uh, those of us who choose to work in the nonprofit sector and um, more specifically fundraisers. So when we think about ethics, and I often go out and I I speak about ethics to uh, groups um, around the country, around the world, the first thing that I, I like to say to everyone is that, and uh, I don't have, this is a, a virtual audience that we have today, but when I'm able to see people face-to-face, it's that this is not the topic that's going to bring a sparkle to your eye and you're going to straighten up in your chair and think, I have just been waiting for this conversation. This is just what you know I want to talk about is uh, ethical fundraising. Right. That's not, right. That's not usually something that does much more than glaze people's eyes over. But is it is it is it because it's something that feels so weighty and distant? Well, yeah, I think that's you, that's right, Ted. I think that uh, the distant part is that it's uh, it, it, it's not concrete. How do you talk about ethics? Of course, you know uh, it's important, but you know I've got more important things to think about in my job. I mean, you know, we have goals to make. We we've got a deficit to overcome. We've got to create this. We've got to make our um, you know uh, hit our goals for this capital campaign. But embedded in each of these. Uh, goals and responsibilities we have every day in uh, so many ways, we deal with decisions that we need to make. And so often those decisions are not singular. They're not made by, um, you know, I don't make the decision. My job at the Asia Foundation, where I'm the Vice President of um, Resource Development, we, we operate in 18 countries throughout Asia. Uh, we have offices in 18 countries. We have staff throughout the United States. So we have many uh, people from uh, with, with various cultural backgrounds, languages spoken. And the decisions that we make are uh, that I often have to make and the activities that I often am involved in uh, require an understanding of where uh, my colleague is coming from, uh, be it in uh, Nepal or Bangladesh or China, wherever it happens to be. And so ethics, I prefer to to kind of tone down the word ethics 
and to think about what that is, what that means for us, how where the meaning comes from. And if I might, um, I'd like to um, draw this back to my recent book, Nonprofit yeah. well, Fundraising please, please, Strategy. Make that bridge. Make that bridge. Okay. So the recent book, Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy, a guide to ethical decision making and regulation for nonprofit organizations, is actually a follow up to uh, the predecessor uh, book, which was uh, Ethical Fundraising: A Guide for Nonprofit Boards and um, Fundraisers. And the wonderful people at Wiley, um, the editors, felt that the word ethical in the former title was a bit off-putting because people will think, well, I'm ethical, so why would I why would want I need to look a at a book? Right. Why do I need a book on ethical fundraising when I'm ethical? So it's been, um, you know, this is a, a little bit more uh, complicated a conversation, but we, we've moved towards nonprofit fundraising strategy to help people think about how we can apply the components of the uh, ethical code that's uh, espoused by AFP and that I've been a part of for so many years and other organizations who have similar codes of ethics, how do you actually apply that into your work as a fundraiser? So that's where this particular rather hefty uh, volume is coming from. It's uh, many chapters. Uh, it covers many different categories. Uh, I'm only the editor of this book. Uh, my job was to work with the individual authors and to keep them on task and to make sure that thematically we were moving forward. So I really want to um, stop here and give uh, great credit to the individual authors who participated by uh, offering chapters for this book. Uh, this particular volume has four new chapters. Uh, Paul Kribeno. It's quite, it's quite a book. It's, it, well, it really it's, is quite a book. It, it, yeah, it's a little bit longer than we thought it was going to be, 452 pages, but I think this is the kind of book I encourage people to, you know, you're not going to pick it up and start at page one and end up at page 452, but you will go through the table of contents. Look at these categories, conflicts of interest. This is something that's of interest, of, you know, that resonates with me. Um, you know, what are some ethical considerations of asking for money? Uh, what is this about tainted money? Gene uh, Temple wrote that uh, chapter, and I, I think it's wonderful. And Diane Lister, who wrote on the appearance of impropriety. So I think that uh, in, in the situations that we face uh, in our roles as fundraisers, this book can serve as a go-to book, uh, and hopefully people, readers will go to it and, and look for areas that are of interest to them. Well, and, and specific to that, I, I, I want to ask you in, in terms of some of the, the chapters that you just highlighted there, um, is being ethical the same as doing the right thing? Well, I would uh, I would ask back, what does it mean to do the right thing? Um, you know, you and I could, uh, we've known each other for some time and um, respect each other um, a great deal, and yet... It's possible that we might disagree on a uh, a particular uh, let's call it a dilemma to you know kind of focus it within the ethical context that we may have differing opinions. Does that mean that one of us is right and the other one is wrong? Well, is, um, is being ethical an absolute? Well, there are those who believe if one has uh, let me answer that in two ways. One is that. Um, to have a code, as members of AFP have and subscribe to and promise to uh, adhere to as members of the organization, suggests that there are ways of behaving that are unethical, which could similarly suggest that that means the converse is that one can be unethical. But I believe that when we think about doing the right thing or being ethical, uh, I, I stripped this down, Ted, to the whole uh, issue of process and narrative. If we've got, if you and I disagree with something, or we have an ethical dilemma that we're faced with, um, how do we go about resolving uh, that ethical dilemma? And I'm going to step away from code right now, and I'm going to talk about, go back to uh, what I feel uh, so strongly about in terms of values and being able to be respectful and try to understand uh, others' opinions, is that when we have a, 
uh, potential conflict of interest or an appearance of impropriety. What's really critical is that we, as we address that dilemma, engage in a fact-finding, if you will, understanding as many components of what causes this dilemma as possible, rather than moving into a rather linear state of, well, we've got to go through a process to determine whether this is right or wrong, and then we'll determine you know, what the, uh, the action needs to be. That, in my mind, the process, the narrative, the conversation is uh, an incredibly integral part of what I consider to be uh, the ethical life of a fundraiser, to be very specific about it. Mm-hmm. But the, when when you put in those terms, ethics uh, appears to be connected to community. Uh, in other words, if you choose to be part, as you and I do, uh, be part of a community of international fundraisers, and that particular community requires uh, that you subscribe to a set of guidelines known as a code of ethics, then those are the guidelines for that community. It's possible for people to uh, be a fundraiser and not subscribe to that, but this particular community um, sets forth a set of guidelines that we would see um, not acting in accord with that that code, we would see those activities as unethical. Yeah. You know, some years ago, um, AFP engaged in um, a series of uh, conversations, discussions with uh, colleagues from international um, institutions around the uh, possibility of creating an international code of ethics. And I think that this was a... uh, a valiant effort that was uh, premised on um, only good intent. But what many discovered in this process is that coming up with an international code of ethics, uh, you know, this is a a community, a broader community, agreeing on what might be those agreed-upon values. The best that could come from this are a strong set of guidelines, a strong set of this is how we shall uh, behave and work with each other, but it was not possible to come up with this code of ethics that would apply um, around uh, through different cultures. So, so not only is it, well, I guess it's the same. It could be seen as the same thing, but it's not only community driven, but but intrinsic to various cultures. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. That that there can be difference. So, so that would that would tend to, and again, you're the expert, so I'm asking these questions of you. So it would it would tend to suggest that. Um, ethics is not an absolute, um, that ethics is tied to guidelines that are agreed to either culturally or by community. Well, first of all, you, um, you you flatter me unnecessarily by calling me an expert. I, I, I don't think that – I spent a lot of time um, – and uh, am deeply interested in the topic of, of ethics and ethical fundraising, but I, I wouldn't call myself um, an expert uh, in that I don't, am not steeped academically in the fields of philosophy and ethics. So to talk about what ethics is and isn't, you know, we may have people who um, are far more familiar with, uh, you know, that sense of how we approach the field as I am. But I do believe, I mean, it's my personal opinion that uh, we cannot, when we talk about ethics, we are talking about, as you put it, community, uh, as I describe it, values, uh, and that we have to integrate uh, various cultural uh, opinions. And those cultural opinions don't have to be uh, driven by race or ethnicity. Uh, They can be economic. They can be, you know, any number of ways that we can look at how we um, we differ from each other. Exactly, and it's it's through those uh, those differences that we can learn to understand each other and to uh, grow as human beings. We are live here today on the Nonprofit Coach with Janice Galpetti. Uh, we do intend to speak specifically about more of the details in her book, Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy. We're going to uh, take a quick break, and, and Janice, when we come back, I do want to uh, get into some of your tips uh, from this guidebook. Uh, so we will be right back after this break.
couple of things I just want to note uh, for your calendar. Uh, I mentioned earlier that due to the Memorial Day holiday here in the United States, we will not have a live show as we normally would on the 28th of May. So that's a great uh, day to catch up on shows that you may have missed. Of course, all the shows of the Nonprofit Coach are available on iTunes and available via uh, your computer or your smartphone at tedhartradio.com. So you can listen to it anywhere. Take us to the beach and catch up with some of the experts from around the world that we have here on the Nonprofit Coach. We'll be right back after that uh, holiday uh, with uh, Andrea Kilstedt in her new book, Fundraising Power, uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach on June 4th. And that's, of course, at our regularly scheduled time of 12 noon Eastern. Then we have a very special show for you uh, planned for June 10th. We want to draw your attention uh, to the work of the Charities Aid Foundation of America, of which I serve as CEO, and over on CAF America Radio Network on June 10th at a very special time, 10 a.m., coming to you live from Singapore. Uh, We will uh, be announcing the CAF America Asia Pacific Advisors Service, uh, and the show will be about best practices of giving in the Asia Pacific region. Of course, CAF America has been uh, giving and making grants into the Asia Pacific region on behalf of our donor clients for more than 21 years, uh, and this is a highlight of those services and enhancements to those services. You'll be able to listen live on the CAF America radio network, June 10th at 10 a.m. And, of course, that information is all available uh, over in the radio links at tedhart.com. What I want to uh, do now is just share with you a little bit about uh, new service available from Google. And then we're going to head right back over live with our page two expert today, Janice Gal-Petty. Life, it's busy. Wouldn't it be nice to have a central place where you could save what's on your mind? With Google Keep, you can stay on top of your world by quickly and easily organizing everything you want to remember. No matter where you are, finalize door list for Thursday's gig. So when you find inspiration, you can file away your ideas. And Google Keep stores them safely across all your devices. When the time comes, you'll have everything covered. Save what's on your mind. Google Keep. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with uh, Janice Gow-Petty of the Asia Foundation and noted expert on uh, issues related to cultural sensitivity, diversity, and ethics. And in her terrific new book, which is part of the AFP Fund Development Series, series uh, called Nonprofit Fundraising Strategy, A Guide to Ethical Decision-Making and Regulation for Nonprofit Organizations. Um, Janice, welcome back here. The foreword to this book as written by a, a terrific colleague of ours, Andrew Watt, who's the president and CEO of AFP. Talk to us about why it's significant to have Andrew Watt um, writing the introduction or the forward uh, to a book of this sort. Andrew uh, be, is a former member of um, AFP's Ethics Committee. So uh, when he first came to AFP, one of his first uh, roles was to serve as a volunteer member when he was still working in the UK. Andrew brings a um a strong vision and uh international uh understanding of what ethical fundraising uh implies for us as um fundraisers. Beyond that, ethical uh Andrew in his current role as the president and CEO of AFP serves as, um, you know, he's the face of AFP in many ways. And Andrew believes he walks the talk when it comes to um, the code of conduct and uh, ethics as a core value in the work of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. So I was deeply uh, gratified and honored when Andrew uh, agreed to write the foreword for this book. I think that, um, you know, without 
going into great detail there, uh, you know, he points out uh, rightfully uh, in the foreword that, you know, four or five years ago when Ethical Fundraising, the predecessor book, came out, it was um, a valiant effort, and my colleagues said, okay, well, you know, Janice really wants to put this book together, so we're going to rally behind her and we'll do it. But it didn't have a lot of, wow, this is really important. And then he says, you know, fast forward to where we are in 2012, 2013. And look at where we stand in terms of uh, the, the nonprofit sector uh, with regard to uh, how important public trust is to our existence and how many times do we need to be uh, addressing uh, loss of public trust. And so this, as Andrew um, says, writes in the foreword, uh, ethical fundraising becomes even more important than ever to more people. So I am grateful to him for um, for that work. Well, I am as well, and, and, and I knew that you would if I asked you that question. You went specifically where I wanted you to go, uh, and that is this issue of public trust. And and it seems to me that all of these issues are related, um, and how you've put this book together is absolutely brilliant. Um, in walking us through that process of understanding that as we see uh, public trust in so many sectors of our society uh, being questioned or potentially even being damaged. Um, is that not an issue for the, the nonprofit sector uh, for everyone to get beyond the word ethics, beyond um, some of the, the other words that, that can sort of get in the way of an understanding of what you're trying to accomplish here and really understand that the bottom line here is that we're stewards of public trust uh, and that's the very nature of why our organizations have the tax status that they have, that they are organized in the way that they are, and that without that common understanding that binds us together as a community, again, going back to standards of community, then we lose sight of what it is that we do. Yeah. I mean, I, I well said, Ted. I, I agree completely. I mean, without public trust, fundraising can't happen, simply put. Um, you know, we as uh, those who seek charitable dollars uh, cannot do this if, if the, the public uh, chooses to uh, or loses trust in us. And, and I might add that to that, we, we have to be mindful of public opinion and how public opinion is um, articulated, uh, at least within the United States. Uh, the media has a, a, a very important role here. Uh, it takes one uh, scandal within a nonprofit organization uh, and for the uh, news media to pick it up. And uh, then, you know, how it, it's, it, it's what has gone wrong. We've seen it so many times. And, and I think that we, um, in our work, are uh, entrusted with being able to articulate to those who will support us why we deserve that trust. We do that in action. We do that in word. Um, it's a, a very small way. It's why this book exists, is to uh, provide a, um, a guideline, if you will, or, or just a, a place where there's some uh, some opportunity for a fundraiser to go to and to seek some um, guidance in terms of how might I act or how might my organization act if we're faced with a conflict of interest, if we're looking at, uh, you know, compensation as an ethical dilemma. I mean, you know, you don't think of that as being high on the scale of ethical issues, but it's, it's a very important one. Um, in the book, we have a new section on the ethics assessment inventory, which is a um, tool that was devo developed by Bob Shoemake and his colleagues uh, in um, the Midwest to help members of AFP um, kind of benchmark their own responses to certain ethical uh, uh, situations and then the other piece that uh, I want to touch on that's in the uh, the new book, nonprofit fundraising strategy, are the new business practice codes. Now, for years, uh, AFP's code, and I'm, I'd just like to take a second and, and go uh, uh, reflect on AFP's code of ethics. 
Uh, the code is applied, as I said earlier, and as you know, uh, and many of the listeners know, to the members of AFP. Increasingly, over the years, we have uh, engaged a number of members who represent uh, the business side of the work we do, their vendors, their consultants, uh, and they are um, participants. Uh, they want to support the code. And so about, I think it was maybe three years ago, four years ago now, uh, we created uh, new code, added new code, and brought in codes that are specific to business members. So this applies to uh, a business who might be small business to a large uh, vendor um, in, say, technology. But they, um, this code is now accepted and is uh, incorporated and is part of uh, the membership so that business members themselves have the opportunity to say that they will also abide by AFP's Code of Ethics. And, and I think that's a big advance forward, don't you? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I think it's a big step forward. I think that it's uh, also a step forward. I, you know, by no means are we, um, you know, at the uh, – uh, this is the end of the road where we can say, well, we've done it. Let's have a celebration now. I mean, uh, that we've, you know, succeeded in embracing uh, all of the constituents around a code of ethics. I think that this is um, part of what the AFP Ethics Committee does. And I am no longer active on the committee. I was termed out, uh, so I serve as uh, chair emeritus. But the, um, the the committee is charged with two major responsibilities. One of those is uh, education, and the other is enforcement. Uh, the enforcement is to be the uh, arbitrating body, if you will, in the case of uh, when there are um, infractions or violations of the code, and I'm not going to go into that on, on this call uh, unless anyone wants to get into that. But I wanted to uh, focus just a, a few words around the educational part, and that's the piece that... Uh, is so essential to our ability to be what we would call ethical as fundraisers, to educate, to talk with each other. Uh, I enjoy when I'm asked to go out and speak. This is um, about ethics, something that I uh, absolutely love doing. Um, the, the opportunity to be uh, a speaker, on um, a guest on your call today is not only an honor, but it's a great opportunity to also encourage people to think about how might we educate ourselves, our donors, our colleagues, our boards on what it does mean to be ethical institutions. And it's interesting. I'm just reading an email. I just got an email in uh, from uh, William in Chicago, um, and and I just wonder what you think about this. He's raising um, the specter of the Arimony United Way scandal, mm-hmm. and uh, and and what relationship that had to putting these topics on the table. Well, I I think that the Arimony scandal um, was one of the earliest publicized. Uh, Scandals to to hit the uh, nonprofit sector, and um, Arimony, who was the uh, Bill Arimony, who was the president of United Way of America, uh, was um, you know when I talked earlier about uh, ethics being um, a value or a demonstration of living the good life, uh, you know we could take that phrase "living the good life" and apply it to uh, to him and his behavior in a uh, in the negative, in terms of uh, using his position in power, uh, using um, resources that were donated to the organization for charitable purposes, for personal gain. Uh, This was all very troubling. The interesting thing about uh, Bill Arimony, and unfortunately, you know, there have been way too many people who have followed in his footsteps, is that not only were there ethical uh, challenges and ethical dilemmas and, and uh, just breaches of ethical conduct, but there were laws that were broken. And I, I just want to point out that when we talk about ethics and we talk about law, I mean, ethics and law are not, uh, you know, they, they uh, to be ethical uh, and to be within the law uh, are uh, two separate conversations. 
Exactly, exactly. And and that's where it comes to, to guidelines and, and, as you said, even um, the issue of sort of self-policing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or early and industry yeah. policing. Absolutely. And self-policing, I mean, you know, how, how do we feel about the possibility? It's been posed um, in, um, you know, on Capitol Hill and in other places that perhaps a nonprofit sector uh, needs, if it can't regulate itself, meaning, uh, you know, uh, demonstrate its good stewardship, uh, should there not be government oversight of them? And, you know, to this I say, well, do we really want that? I mean, you know, government oversight of the nonprofit sector uh, might have a, uh, you know, it might change the nonprofit sector significantly. And why and I, I would think that and, and it would. not really for the best. And I think, and I think it brings us to, you know, bring this to sort of current day. And, and this is a, a show that uh, my listeners know we are, you know, staunchly nonpartisan on this show. Um, but I, I think seeing what's happening with the IRS and, and con- the con- congressional discussions right now, uh, the the concern that I have is sort of the confusion that that creates in in the uh, in the marketplace of ideas when it comes to what is a nonprofit when we have groups that are very blatantly and this comes in in, in both sides of the of the aisle mm-hmm. very blatantly utilizing sort of that public sector nonprofit approach to politicize the messages and to seek tax advantage to do that uh and i think that creates confusion yeah it's very troubling um i uh you know i like many people am uh learning from what i hear and read and i i find it to be uh, troubling is the word i mean in terms of the uh the very existence of the 501c3 c3 status and uh how that might be interpreted uh Differently for different uh, organizations is a very troubling thought. Yeah, it really it really is. I, I'm mindful of uh, of the uh, time that we have left here, and as you said, this is um, quite a lengthy book, an awful lot of thought leaders um, in this uh, in this book. Um, I wanted to just ask you to sort of maybe wrap things up for us here, looking at the other side of your topic that you've chosen. Uh, we've spent quite a bit of time on ethical decision making, but what about regulation? Regulation, well. I I I believe that um AFP is um and I will speak as a member of AFP right now uh looking very carefully and uh I think accurately in terms of the uh relationship that the organization has with the leaders on Capitol Hill. Um the you know I'm not going to address regulation per se because I think that uh aside from my earlier comment that I believe that as stewards of the public trust, we have a responsibility to be accountable to our donors. And within that context, I believe we are required to regulate ourselves, that there is a measure of regulation that comes from uh, from that very uh, responsibility that's given to us. Regulation in another context is that which is of oversight, and the oversight which uh, has um, uh, rules, policies, um, a code of conduct, um, and a code of ethics can be viewed as regulation. And um, I, I, I have a belief that Guidelines are important, but inherently, and I'll I'll try to sum this up, inherently it's the decisions that we make as individuals. It's the values, to go back to what I started the conversation on with values, it's the values and it's the respectfulness that we bring to our work that's going to help the public understand and reinforce why we deserve and need to continue to uh, to earn the public trust. Regulation's important, but regulation isn't what is uh isn't going to be the answer to uh situations that we face right now. So going back to where we started um uh the 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 show it, it comes back to community standards and holding each other accountable. 
Yes, absolutely. It goes back to boards. It, it, it takes a look at how are we organized. So we have governing boards. Our boards are volunteers. Um, you know, the uh, a board member. Uh, what gain does a board member have for sitting on a nonprofit board? Uh, they they are a part of helping to fulfill a mission. They are fiduciary stewards. Uh, you know, the stewardship of the mission of the organization is important, and so it, it is about you know trust. The capital that we hold is trust. And do you think that uh, as a sector we're doing well with that or are we in danger? I think that we should not be overly alarmed. I think that there are those who would, you know, we hear these situations and and, and, they, and they make us cringe and, and uh, show and uh, get, oh, you know, feel like, well, what is this all coming to? I, I think that the 200 years plus that we have of philanthropy in the United States, we've got so much that we can look back on and be proud of, and we need to continue to use that as the standard to help us continue to move forward. The conditions that we're moving into, Ted, I mean, our our, our communities are changing, and we need to be mindful of how these communities change. Are we honoring? Are we embracing? Are we inclusive of the people and the uh, the values that that are uh, shaping the uh, the world of 2013, the philanthropic world of 2013? Well, I think you raised such an important topic there because um, what of the difference in cultures? And, and we we already established that you know ethics are not an absolute, but are tied to culture and community. Um, what takes a precedent if you are becoming a bigger community and embracing more cultures? How do you change your ethical view um, to take those cultures into account? Or do well, the cultures have to change to the community standards? I, I think that there's a, you know an organic response to that, and, and I think that it's the uh, the institution as it strategically and mindfully uh, embraces uh, new communities, new programs, new values, uh, and and is sensitive to its uh, mission and why it exists, that in that organic development of bringing people to the table of decision-making, of influence, who are representative of the populations who are being served, uh, that's going to bring, for example, to the board table um, a new dialogue, and that dialogue needs to take place. As we wrap up, we only have a couple minutes left. I'm just wondering uh, what advice you have for our listeners about these challenges um, that they'll be facing in the months and years ahead. The advice is, uh, as a person who's asked that question a lot, um, I, I like to reply uh, somewhat flippantly uh, that you know people who are uh, you know ethicists, if you will, and I don't go as far as to call myself an ethicist, but what we're good at is we ask a lot of questions. Uh, we're not so good at perhaps giving you know answers because answers tend to be absolute. And so I'd say that there's a, some value to asking questions, open-ended questions, questions that are designed to help us think beyond where we are today, look to where we want to be five years, ten years. A, a generation down the road, and 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 that's a, that's really a good standard, isn't it? Is is to try to look forward and not just look back. We have to look back because our history does inform who we are. But I think we we, we use history as we look forward, um, you know, and that's where we are in the present. Is we're able to take our history and we're able to be focused on the future. What's next uh, for Janice Gow-Petty and uh, the evolution of uh, her role in help guiding all of us in the sector in the topics of diversity and ethics? Oh, I, I don't know. I, it's been a, um, you know, I've enjoyed every minute of my involvement with uh, putting these books together, um, and I love having the opportunity to engage in conversation with people about the issues and the challenges framed around ethical behavior. So I'll just keep on doing what I do, and I'm looking for the people who are coming alongside of me and the next generation of leaders who are really going to be able to take us off into that future of uh, unknown possibilities. 
Well, that's great. Well, this has been uh, live here on the Nonprofit Coach with Janice Galpetti. Janice, you've uh, just given us so much uh, guidance and so much to think about, uh, very important topics as you uh, as you always do. Uh, remember, everyone, that uh, we will be away next week, uh, so we will be back here live on the Nonprofit Coach uh, with you on June 4th at 12 noon Eastern. And that was our latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us today. Catch you in two weeks. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.